private services, when the music's been as powerful as it is this morning, you're going to leave here feeling blessed no matter how poorly I preach this morning. <laughs> so it just takes all the pressure right off. You know, I, uh, got a, we got an interesting email in the office this week. I, I actually originally thought it might be the answer to the prayer that I voiced last week that God would pay off of our, our mortgage. We have a $907,000 mortgage, but we got an email this week, came from a lawyer, supposedly. He was representing a philanthropist, uh, a Jewish philanthropist, actually. I can't even say that word this morning. And um, an heir to an alcohol distilling, distilling company, by all things. And he was prepared to give us $650,000. Not quite nine hundred and seven, but just about that le- level. And so uh, all I had to do was contact them, and they would let me know what we needed to do to meet the conditions <laughs> from which we could receive that wonderful gift. And so uh, I was supposed to reply to a private email, and uh, we'd go from there. And, uh, you know, I looked up the law firm that was supposedly listed. It didn't come up in the Google. Neither did the lawyer, actually. And so I got just a, a little suspicious and hit the delete button as we went forward. But, you know, it, sometimes when we hear about things that are too good to be true, we wonder if we're getting scammed. And then on the other end, it is if it is true and it's that good, how do I qualify for it? You know, we've, we've had two passages of scriptures that we've really kind of bounced back and forth in our series on prayer. We're in the last week of a series entitled Prayer Matters, and we've been talking about things that are related to the issue of prayer because prayer really matters in our lives. And we've had Luke chapter 11, which has been our foundational text, verses 1 through 13, and, and hopefully you've got that starred in your Bible and you'll return to it on a number of occasions. But if we've had a prayer hero or an illustration of prayer that we've been holding on to, it has been the prophet Elijah, who's mentioned to us in James chapter 5, where James tells us that the effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much has a huge impact. And then he offers Elijah, who's a man just like us, which means that when he got up in the morning, he had to put, he was living in the 21st century, he had to put his pants on one leg at a time, had to pull on his socks, tie his shoes, all those kinds of good things, just like us. But when he prayed at God's command, it didn't rain for three and a half years. And then when he prayed at God's command, it rained. And we've been looking at James and the story of James. He tells us about the prophet Elijah. And we see that there's this great promise out there for us that our prayers can really be powerful. I have to admit, you know, one of our readings lately, uh, you know, uh, uh, took us through the passage in the scriptures where it encourages us to pray for for government, to pray for our leaders and governors and kings and those who are authority over us. And I have to admit, sometimes when I... When I follow that prayer, I really wonder if my prayer has any impact or not. Ever, ever had that kind of idea? I mean, like if we're praying for peace in the Middle East right now, do, do we really think that our prayer that we offer here or anywhere we might be really has an impact or not? Is this promise of the impactful or effective, effective prayer of the righteous really true? And so I want to talk this morning just a little bit about the conditions 
that go with experiencing extraordinary prayer. And I want to take us to a passage of Scripture that really became uh, one of my favorites and a challenge to me way back in the late 80s when I was just starting to pastor. And I'd love for you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. If you're using one of our pew, pew Bibles today, which are right there in the seats underneath you, you'll find our text today on page 368. This is a passage, uh, uh, verse 14 in particular, was a passage that I committed to memory a number of years ago. Let me give you a little bit of the context of what's going on here. Solomon has become king after his father David. You know, Saul was the first king of the Israelites, and then there was David, then was, there was Solomon. After Solomon, the nation split into two countries, northern, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Solomon became king at a young age. God immediately appeared to him. And he said, Solomon, I, I extend to you the offer. Ask me for anything that you will. And Solomon could have asked for riches. He could have asked for power. He could have asked for honor and fame. And he simply asked God for this. Give me the wisdom to do the job that you've given me to do, to rule these people. And God honored that prayer. And he also gave Solomon riches and honor and fame. And Solomon reigned. And during his journey, he had the privilege of not only building the final palace, if you will, for the kings to live in, but he also had the privilege of fulfilling the dream that his father David had had, which was to build a house for God. And through the beginning chapters of the book of Chronicles, you'll read about that journey. Same stories told as well over in the book of Kings, in First um, Kings chapter 2 through 11. But the experience that we have here in this is that after the temple had been dedicated, and, and in the temple dedication, Solomon offered a prayer. It's the longest prayer that we have in the Bible. And he made a number of petitions of God. Somewhere after that experience, God replied. He answered Solomon's prayer. Now, the text would kind of give you the idea that it kind of happened right on the heels of the dedication. And that could actually be true. But we know that the temple only took seven years to build and the palace took 13 years to build. And we're going to read here in this first verse that, that it was after both the palace and the temple were completed that God spoke to Solomon. So it could be that God's answer came to his prayer six years later. Follow along with me as we pick up in verse 11. And I'm just going to read down through verse 16, even though God's reply to him goes further as he talks to Solomon about the prayer request that he had made for himself as a part of his dedication prayer. And just... Just deal with the ones that go to, to the overall. So, so Solomon finished the Lord's temple and the royal palace. And everything that had entered in Solomon's heart to do for the Lord's temple and for his own palace succeeded. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I've heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple of sacrifice. If I close the sky so there is no rain, or if I command the grasshopper to consume the land, or if I send pestilence on my people, and if my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves, pray, 
and seek my face and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven. I'll forgive their sin and heal their land. My eyes will now be open and my ears attentive to prayer from this place. And I have now chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there at all times. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let me just offer a brief prayer. God, we just pray now that you would just zero us in. Just give us laser beam kind of focus to hear from you this morning. There's a word for all of us, including me. Let us hear it and embrace it in faith. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, first of all, let me submit to you that as we move into this morning, that I believe that, that as God was referring to the temple here that Solomon had dedicated, I believe that you and I, who are believers in Jesus Christ, who have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, we are the temple of God. And those same attentive ears, those same focus of his eyes is with us as it was with the temple in those days. And so as we pray, it is though we were praying in the midst of the temple of God that he had set aside for his sanctuary. Now, God makes some promises to Solomon. And I think those promises really are the heart and soul of experiencing extraordinary answers to our prayers. Now, the time is pictured where the people of God will have wandered away from God. And God is sending his discipline into their lives as a nation to draw them back. They're experiencing hardship. There's great drought. There's pestilence. There's other kinds of issues that are going on. And they are struggling literally to survive. And God says, in those moments, if you pray, here's what I'll do. And the first thing that he says that he will do is that he says that he will hear them. He said, look at verse 14. Well, say that with me. He said, it, and it, just repeat after me, if you will. We'll just get you all into this. And if my people will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways. Now I got stuck. And then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. The first thing God promises is to hear. Now, biblically, whenever you hear this word, whenever you see this word in the text, it, it is not, we, we often think the idea of, that God just hears us audibly, just listens. But this is the idea of responding. What, what God is saying to us is that if, if in these moments we pray and we meet his conditions for prayer, he will respond to our prayers. This isn't like, you know, your 13-year-old kid who's lying on the couch on the Sunday morning watching cartoons or whatever they're watching, and as you're headed out the door to do something, you say to them, now remember, you have this on your chore list. You know, you got to rake the grass, you got to cut, whatever. And they say, yeah, 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 I hear you. You know, did you hear me? Yeah. And then you leave, and you come back, and nothing's done. And you say to your kid, well, why didn't you do what I told you? You said, I don't remember that. That ever, ever happened to anybody? 
Just wait till your kids get older if your kids are younger. You know, that's not what we're talking about. When God says he hears, he promises that I will respond. He says, I will act. In fact, you know, 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 says it this way. And this is the confidence that we have before him, before God. If we ask anything according to his will, it says he hears us. No doubt, no question, no uncertainty. God hears us. And so God says that he is ready to respond, to hear, to respond to our prayers. His eyes are focused on the temple. His ears are tuned in. Everything else is pushed aside. And he's ready to hear that which arises from his temple, the place where he has put his spirit. Whether it be on the mountainside, the hilltop of Jerusalem, or whether it be in our own hearts and souls and spirits as our bodies of the temple. God hears. He also says he'll forgive. Notice that he calls this place a place of sacrifice. Now that sacrifice on one side was sacrifices of praise and of thanksgiving. In fact, if you go back and read through chapter 6, you'll see that as a part of this celebration of what God had done and of the celebration of the opening of the temple and the dedication of the temple, they literally offered thousands and thousands of animals as statements of praise on behalf of the people of the nation. So there's that aspect. But there's no doubt that the sacrifices that went on in the temple were also about forgiveness. They were about a request for atonement. And God says that if we meet his conditions for prayer, he's ready to forgive us. In fact, the New Testament talks about the same kinds of things. You know, and there's just an extraordinary passage that comes out of one of Paul's letters to the churches. So if you just want to make a note of this and for, for your own reference, this is Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. But just listen to what God has done because of the sacrifice that has been offered in Christ. And we can experience this same type of forgiveness in him. He says, when you were dead in your trespasses. In other words, in the ways that we had violated God's expectations, his requirements for our lives. When we were dead in those and we had uncircumcised hearts. In other words, we weren't a part of God's covenant. We weren't a part of his people. He says, he made you alive with him, referring to Christ, and forgave us all of our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with his obligation that was against us and opposed us, and he has taken it out of the way by nailing it to the cross. God promises to forgive us. Now, here's the marvelous thing about this. You know, and, and we can read in Acts how they, they were proclaiming forgiveness in the name of Christ. You know, the marvelous thing about this is that when God says he will forgive us, it means that our lives are no longer governed by our past. Our lives are governed by our future. God's grace draws a line in the sand and says who we've been without him no longer has an impact on who we are in him. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, that all of a sudden now you can become six foot nine or something and join the Celtics or whatever. That's not what I mean. You know, but what God's saying is that the things that weighed you down and carried you in terms of, in terms of keeping you from being in a full-fledged relationship with him, all that stuff's been erased. It's like God stayed after school and erased it all off the board, and it's gone. It's burned up. It's disappeared. And you get to start brand new with God forgiveness. 
you know, I don't know if we really appreciate the depths of what it really means to experience God's grace. The fact that the things that we have done in our lives that would separate us from God indicate that we don't really have a deep interest in God, that those things have been removed. God no longer sees them, senses them, cares about them, notes them, and we start afresh in God's grace. He promises to forgive us. He will no longer require that our past dictate our future. Lastly, God says he'll heal. He says, I'm going to forgive you of your sin. I'm going to step I'm going to heal your land. Where there's been a drought, the rain's going to come. Where there's been the grasshopper, there's going to be no insects. When there's been other things that have been just kind of eating away at your crops, that stuff's all going to disappear, and you're going to have a tremendous harvest. God says he's going to step in, and he's going to heal. You know, the promise that God's really making us to us in this is that God says, I'm going to intervene with grace related to your future. God's making this, that promise to us. He said, I'm going to step in as a result of your prayer, and I'm going to heal that which is broken within you, that which is sick within you. It could be, it could be physical. It could be spiritual. It could be relational. It could be emotional. It could be financial. It could be anything. God's going to step in. He's going to intervene with his grace. In fact, the fundamental thing that we believe as a church is that God has personally intervened in human history in the person of his, of his son, Jesus Christ, to bring grace to us. You know, I've heard some tremendous stories about how God has intervened in grace in people's lives. Received a letter from one of our, from one of our regular attenders here at Hope Chapel, one of our members, and they said, you know, they've been praying for a long time for there to be a reconciliation in a parent-child relationship. And God's answering that prayer. Grace is intervening. And parent and child is coming back together. God promises to give us grace in our time of need. Now, where we've been trying to focus, though, is on how can we be so sure that these promises are ours? Is there anything I have to do to meet this condition? You know, what, what, what keeps me in a place where I can be like Elijah and I can experience this extraordinary prayer in my life? And I believe God lays out the conditions here. You know, he says, it, if you're in a place of need, he says, what you need to do is humble yourself and pray. You need to seek my face and turn from your wicked ways. The context, I think, for you and I to experience extraordinary prayer in our lives always lies in humility, seeking, and turning. Those three things. If you and I ever really want to say, well, how do I get back to a place where I know that God's hearing my prayers, responding to my prayers, he's forgiving, and he's, and he, and he's just showering his grace down upon me, no matter what shape or size or form it comes in, how do I get back to that place? The answer always is humble yourself. Seek his face and turn from your wicked ways. Those are the three things that God lays out. He says, I'm obligating myself towards my people who pray from my temple, who pray in the spirit that God has given them. I am committing myself that if they will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear their prayer. Forgive their sin 
and heal their land. Now, what is humility? What is humility? You know, humility is one of those things that it's really difficult for us, right? It's because as soon as you kind of get your hand on it, then you, come, you start becoming prideful about being humble, right? And it just kind of slips through your fingers, right? It's kind of a lot like money that way, right? As soon as you get it, it's kind of just gone. You know, it, we, we struggle with humility. So what really is humility? You know, and I, I don't know if I have the perfect definition, but he, here's the word, the, the, the phrase I've given you in your outline. When we think about the context for us as the people who pray to God, and, and that the context that leads to this extraordinary prayer, it's focused on humility, and that humility is a governing awareness that you and I will always be dependent upon God. Now, if I was going to circle a word in that line that was the most powerful, I would circle the word governing, because that's really where the issue is. Is our, we, we could all probably explain how we're dependent upon God for you know, wind and rain and water and all the kind of different things, the, lung, the air that fills our lungs, the blood that goes through our veins. We could talk about all of that stuff. We could give great Sunday school answers, but that's not the same thing as humility governing the way we approach life. It's a very different thing. See, biblically, biblically humility always roots itself in the fact that when we stand before God, we recognize that, we're, he, that we stand in the presence of someone who's holy and we know that we're not. What was Isaiah's first reaction to seeing God high and lifted up in the temple? He says, woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips. The first thing that struck him was his sinfulness. And, and, and that really is the heart and soul of, of where humility starts. It's an awareness that when we stand before God, we are always going to be in a position of need. Always going to be in a position of need. You know, th- this illustration came to me this week. You know, we're going to be doing child dedications in just a little bit. And I'm sure at David and Robin's house, they, as, um, as little Mitchell begins to crawl and then walk, the stuff on the shelves will start going up a little higher and higher, right? It happened, you're, it happened in my house, you know, especially since he's a boy, right? You know, and, and it's just stuff's going to go up higher and higher. And, and what we kind of get into our, our heads, right, is this idea that, that, the good stuff is always up on the upper shelves, right? So that as we grow taller, we can reach the better stuff. And so we translate that over to our spiritual lives. That in other words, the maturer I get, the longer I'm a believer, I'll be able to get to the better gifts that God's got on the higher shelves. There's only one problem with that. God puts his best shelves, gifts on the lowest shelves. It's only as we grow smaller in God's presence that God's gifts really become available to us in a great and powerful way. What, what, did, what did John the Baptist say? He says, I must decrease, so he must increase. You know, and so humility is, this, is just this idea, this understanding that you and I are always going to be in a position of dependence upon God for forgiveness and salvation, for his giftedness, for his strength, his power, direction, wisdom. The list just goes on and on and on, and it just stays with us. And what comes, what is the outflow of that? Is that there, there's just a prevailing willingness to do what God asks us to do. That's why it's a governing awareness of the fact that you and I will always be dependent upon God. The first context of really having an extraordinary prayer is humility. You know, I, I, 
I wonder a lot of us, if we were searching, and we've been reading stuff about prayer, reading Bible passages about prayer, and we've been listening to videos, and, and we've been praying together with other folks, but, but I really wonder, in my own heart and, 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 and maybe from your heart, is our reaching out to God to, in prayer really a cry for help? Because that's where it starts. A cry to God for help in our humility. Then he says, you got to seek. you got to seek my face. You know, and now, here I, I, I've given you this, the phrase of, the, this is the sustained, sincere desire to know and to walk with God. And, and, and I don't know if any of those words is unimportant. Now, here's my concern. A lot of time we seek God as a form of therapy. Our lives are in trouble. We need something, and we seek God. Maybe it's relational. Sometimes it's occupational. Sometimes it's spiritual. Sometimes it's financial or whatever. We get into a place where we think our lives are coming apart at the seams, and we, we, need, we need some help to kind of put it back together. So we seek God in a therapeutic way. We're motivated in the short term to reach out to God. And then when the pieces start to go back together, our interest in God starts to go down. You know, that's why sometimes in the old days that the guys who led revivals around our country and, and, and around the world, they, they, they were convinced that, that a spiritual awakening would not last all that long. Because their, their idea was that as, this, as people responded to God and got their lives right and the prosperity came, they're going to be distracted by everything else and they're going to go right back to where they were. So they gave it a generation until the spiritual awakening would wear, wear off. You could look at New England and you could see evidence of that. When we talk about seeking God's face here, it's more than just think, seeking God in a therapeutic sense. It's, it's being on a quest to really know God. I, I was trying to think, what are the examples in the scriptures? And the, the people that came to mind the most were the Magi, right? These are guys who traveled for months and months, for, forever, to come and to find the one who was born king of the Jews. It's not a short-term fleeting thing where I'll walk around a corner and maybe listen in the window to see what's going on in the synagogue. These guys left everything behind, traveled through dangerous just to find the one who was born king of the Jews. That's what it means to seek God. That's what it means to seek God. Now, sometimes we want to re just kind of reduce that to activity. And, and, and that's probably a sense of, of helpfulness in there. But in other words, I read my Bible, I pray, I go to church, that kind of stuff. I'm seeking God. And, and I want you to know that it goes deeper than that. You know, it's interesting that that before Moses left the planet, this is hundreds, hundreds of years before the people would ever leave, enter into the promised land. He was already saying to them, when, when, when God intervenes, when you walk away from him and he disperses you to the nations, and you cry out to him from being out in the nations, talking about the exiles, he says that God's going to hear you, and, and listen to what he says, and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and soul. It's really a matter of the heart. And it's a sustained, sincere desire to know and to walk with God. The, the key to unlocking the extraordinary promises of prayer that God's been given to us is to have a sustained, 
sincere desire to really know God in Jesus Christ and to walk with him. Last, he gives this, this phrase of turn from your wicked ways. You know, um, another word he could have used there is the word repent. Repent simply means to turn. It means to be, you're going one way, you're moving away from God, you turn and you start coming back towards God. We, 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 we struggle, I think, in, in, in today's church Maybe, here, maybe it's just here in America or in the Western world or whatever, but we have a tendency to see repentance as conviction. It's we feel bad about something that we've done before God. That may be a little part of repentance, but that's really not repentance biblically. Biblically, it really is talking about change. And this isn't just a change in the sense of modifying behavior. It's having a change in lifestyle that's rooted in the fact that our character is being changed by God. It's not just kind of some short-term kind of stuff, but it's something that's powerful and it's direct because God is changing who we are as we open ourselves up to him. You know, I'd ask you to, to just do a little reflection. You know, in this area of repentance, you know, I think one of the things that can be very helpful in telling us whether or not we really have hearts that are ready to turn, whether we have repentant hearts that are turning back towards God, is, is, is to think about whether there's anything in your life that at one point in time you were under deep conviction about, and you no longer feel it, but it's still present in your life. Now, just let that sink in for a minute. When you and I really have hearts that are ready to turn to God, ready to rep repent, you know, we, we, if we look back and say, okay, you know, I felt really convicted about this sin that's in my life, this shortcoming spiritually or whatever, this lack of a spiritual discipline, and you felt a great deal of conviction about it, but now you're at a time where you're still doing the same stuff, but you just really don't ever feel anything spiritually about it. I think you're in a danger zone. You know, when I was... Nine years old, I think, I had my appendix out. I got quite the scar. If you want, no, I won't show it. You know, in, in fact, it's a real bad one. I used to tell some of my friends when I was younger that it was a spear wound, you know, and they had sewed it up and that kind of stuff. Because that's a lot cooler than having your appendix out, right? You know, but I remember back then when I went to the doctor, you know, and and, my, and I hurt, it hurt. It was, it's one of these things. You never know really what's the matter with you, right? We had been out. We had been running around doing all this kind of stuff in the woods and whatever. And I was wicked thirsty. So instead of going back to the house, which was probably like a third of a mile away, I just took some water out of the brook. And the very next day, my stomach's hurt. And I said, oh, man, I drank something out of it. I shouldn't have, whatever. And I was afraid to tell my parents. And it just got worse and worse. And so the next day, I had to tell them. And, and so they finally took me to the doctor. And the doctor said, it's your appendix. He said, but the good thing is it still hurts. Now, that didn't make a whole lot of sense to a 10-year-old. You know, how can it be good that it still hurts? And he said, well, you know, if it didn't hurt anymore, that means it's ruptured. And that's even worse. When we get to a place where it doesn't hurt anymore spiritually before God, it's even worse. Because, not a, because we are losing the conditions for God to answer our prayers 
in an extraordinary way. You see, these things about humility, about searching, about turning, repenting, those things are all issues of the heart. And so the real question for us as we think about what God going to do with all that we've learned about prayer, about whether or not we're going to really meet his conditions to, for this extraordinary prayer that we know that when we turn to him, he's going to hear us, he's going to forgive us, he's going to intervene in the way that we need him to intervene with his grace. That battle is won in our hearts. So the question we really have to ask ourselves as we launch on from this issue of prayer is how's the battle going in our own hearts? Who's winning? And who do you really want to win? Let's take a moment and pray. We're just going to have a couple of minutes of silent prayer. I'm going to guide you in that in the sense of offering you some things to pray about. So, Father, I pray that you'd hear our prayer now as we come to you. Is there a way that you need to humble yourself before God today? Is there a way that you need to humble yourself before God today to acknowledge your dependence on him? And perhaps that starts with the issue of faith in Christ as a Savior and as a Lord. Are you truly seeking God today? Is it the sustained passion of your heart? Or is it a periodic thing that somehow is there to alleviate our fears and our pain? It's therapeutic. Are you really searching for God today? Are you in the danger zone? Are there some things in your life that you know aren't right before God, but they just don't hurt anymore? All of what God's taught us today resides in the fact that he's got his eyes and ears focused on the temple. Is your body truly the temple of the Holy Spirit today? Have you personally and specifically invited Christ to come into your life to save you, to forgive you of your sins, and to follow him as your Lord? If you haven't and you're ready to do that today, 
you can pray a prayer just like this. And if you're going to pray this prayer, I encourage you to, to tell somebody about it before today you leave, whether you check it off in your card and say, I choose to become a follower of Christ, whether you take me by the hand as you leave today. But make it known that you've taken a step of faith. And all you got to do is say a prayer like this. Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I've done stuff that I know that I'm not proud of, so certainly you're not proud of it. I know I can't ever change those things. But I ask for your forgiveness based on what Jesus did and who he is. And even though I may not know all that it means right now, I invite him into my life by faith as my Savior and Lord. For I pray this in Jesus' name, his name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to invite our worship team to come back. They're going to lead us in our final song. Let me encourage you to continue to respond to God and what he's been saying to you today. As we begin to sing, I would invite our ushers to come forward and to receive our offering. And as the offer plates go back, you can also you can place your offering there, but she also to place in your connection cards. Let's stand and sing to the Lord this morning. Thank you.